Good morning. So, uh, got one more reading uh, to tack on. This is from the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets. Uh, actually, it's the only uh, prophet who is Italian. His name is Malachi. Actually, it's Malachi, but I think that's hilarious, so we're going to go with that. Um, Jesus actually mentions it in the reading, but it's worth looking at a little bit more than just that section, uh, because usually when somebody in the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, they don't just mean that line. They intend for people to kind of back up and look at the much larger context. So Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And it kind of goes on in, in similar vein. Keep that in your head for just a second. So John the Baptist hits the scene, and we talked about him uh, last week. Uh, He has a movement that's actually quite popular, uh, and for quite a while more popular than Jesus. Uh, He is reenacting the the, uh, Israel crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. He's basically preaching renewal saying, we are going to reenact this moment from our deep past. Remember, you are the people of Israel, so act like it. And also, somebody's coming. Now, eventually, John the Baptist will criticize uh, somebody by the name of Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, Herod the Tetrarch is one of the sons of Herod the Great, Herod the Great was the king who was in power when Jesus was born. You know, he's the one that goes and kills all the children two and under in the city of Bethlehem, which I have to say, to be perfectly honest, uh, this may surprise you, but that's not the worst thing that he did. (laughs) Terrible person. Um, After he dies, there's a whole bunch of questions about who's going to become the king of the Jews in his place. And the person that he designated, one of his sons, he wasn't good enough. And so they split his kingdom. And anyway, this other Herod, one of his sons, gets a fourth of his kingdom. But he wants, he wants dad's title. He wants to be the king of the Jews. Uh, the Herod family, the Herodian family, is so dysfunctional that it will make your family look like the Cleavers. And if you don't know who the Cleavers are, find somebody with gray hair and ask them. <laughs> hey, I have, the gray, I have gray hair too, man. So, <clears throat> in the course of events, Herod the Tetrarch, the one who's in power at the time of Jesus and John, <clears throat> essentially shacks up with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist, as you might imagine, 
didn't have kind things to say about that. Uh, especially if this other Herod wants the title King of the Jews. Like, that's not kosher, almost literally. Like, you can't do that. And so for his trouble, Herod, the son, locks John the Baptist up. Now, John the Baptist knows who he is. Like, who he, John, is. He knows or has a very strong vocational sense that he is the one to prepare the way. That somebody is coming, something is about to happen, and here we go. But now think of it from his perspective. He's in jail. And there's, he's probably going to be there for a while. And he doesn't know this yet, but he dies in prison. And he's hearing reports about this one guy, a relation of his, who was from Nazareth that he had baptized. And he was pretty certain. I mean, he declared publicly, like, this is the guy. This is who we've been waiting for. God is finally doing what we've been waiting for him to do. And yet, if you remember feeding that I just did, you know, the, the Lord, like he goes into his temple and he's this refiner's fire and this fuller's soap and he does all these things. Like the reports that he's hearing about this Jesus of Nazareth don't match up. It's not what I think he was supposed to do. He was supposed to go to the temple and reform it. And God's presence is supposed to return. And he hasn't. John the Baptist is confused. Which I find kind of comforting because there are loads of things about Jesus and his life that make very little sense to me. And so I apparently am in good company. So he sends his disciples to Jesus. And they're... They're given a question. Are, are you it? Because our, our teacher is, was pretty sure you were it, and now he's confused. What is going on here? And like any good rabbi, Jesus can't seem to answer a question with a straightforward answer. And so he says, go back and tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the poor of the, the good news preach to them, the dead are raised, and so on. Classically Jewish answer, because it forces them to answer it for themselves. He's not going to spoon feed them an answer. Now, we assume that this interaction happened publicly. Because Jesus then turns to the crowd, which means that we can also assume that the crowd heard this question. And Jesus is, in effect, on dangerous ground here. One of the recurring themes is that he, during his career, will be identified as the Messiah. And almost every single time, Jesus pushes back, or he gets a little distance, or he says something really confusing and cryptic because he doesn't want to be identified as such yet. 
Because he's got this big old following, and suddenly if the Roman authorities start hearing that there's another guy, and oh, good Lord, he's, he's from Galilee, just like the last one. His name was Judas Gamala. Like, he's going to get a following. We're going to have a Roman security issue, so we need to just go in and kill him. Jesus kept distancing himself from that for a while because he had more to do. So Jesus answers this question cryptically, and of course, if you read between the lines, what Jesus is saying is, yes, I am in fact the one that you've been waiting for. But then he turns to the crowd. <clears throat> and and this, this is why sometimes the New Testament is infuriating to read, because it seems like he's just start, he's like got ADD. He's talking about something else now. Because he says, what'd you go out to see? A reed shaken by the winds? A man in soft clothing? Why are we talking about that right now, Jesus? As it turns out, when Herod the Tetrarch became king, one of the ways that you declare your kingship or who's in charge is you mint coins. And you can't have, if you're Jewish, and Herod was Jewish-ish, um, uh, you, you couldn't have like, your face on it. That's what the Romans did. And so he adopted as his symbol a particular kind of reed that grew all over Galilee and represented the fertility of the Galilean lands. And apparently, I mean, I haven't been there, but apparently the wind starts blowing and these reeds kind of waft back and forth and it's quite nice. And then Herod also, of course, lived in a palace. He fancied himself as a king. He was like a fourth of a king. But you can assume that he wore soft clothing. So Jesus seems to draw a contrast here between the powers that pretend, Herod and, and everything else he comes to represent, and also then John the Baptist, who is this fiery prophet, who lives out in the wilderness and wears these ragged clothes and has an odd diet. We talked about that last week. So, that raises, I think, well, it raises a whole bunch of questions for me anyway, but have you ever found yourself wondering, what on earth is going on here? Or, God, none of this makes sense. What are you doing right now? Or, God, where are you? Because if we take that passage from Malachi seriously and, and connect it to what John the Baptist is doing, and, and John was very critical of the establishment um, he was in, you, you kind of have to listen very carefully, but he was critical of even the temple, which is where God's presence was. And, and there was all this expectation that when Messiah came, God would come back and dwell in his temple in a way that he hadn't for many centuries. It ultimately comes to the question of, God, where are you? So I would ask you, where is God? Now, we look at that question with 
2,000 years of history, we would say God is present in Jesus. God is present everywhere. We might say um, God is present like within my heart. Uh, it's, you'll, you'll hear that more like as an American Christian uh, than anything else. Not that it's not true, but we tend to emphasize that. But where is God? As John is sitting there rotting away in prison, and he, has, he thought Jesus was the guy, and Jesus is not quite doing what he thought he was going to do, he's effectively asking, where is God? What is God doing? So I would ask you, when have you asked, where is God? Do you ask that question when plans don't work out? When your favorite restaurant is closed? It's a joke, but whatever. Um, Do you ask that question when your health starts to fail? When you lose your job? When the future is quite uncertain? When it seems like the world is falling apart. Where is God? What is God doing? How is God acting? Where is he moving? There, um, actually, uh, my Hebrew teacher, when I was an undergrad, wrote a book about uh, divine absence. Um, I, confession, I have not read it, but I remember some of his lectures and conversation about it. Um, and he noticed that when God's people would talk about God's absence, it often functioned as an invitation to greater trust. You might have at some point heard the phrase, uh, waiting on the Lord, waiting for God to act. And I, I don't know about you, but times when I have waited for God to act, and by the way, the, the whole health failing, job loss, future uncertain, like that's been me like the last two years um, until, I don't know, almost a year ago now. Um, those are the times when you tend to grow. Those, those are the times when you are presented, even though it doesn't feel like it in that moment, with an opportunity for you as a, just a human being, but also as a follower of Jesus, to grow much more richly in your faith. If you're a musician or not, uh, there's a a phrase that that bounces in my head a lot when I think about theology and what it means to follow Jesus, which is, you've got to suffer to sing the blues. Have you ever met somebody who you know has been kicked around a fair bit? And they are faithful followers of Jesus. Jesus. And as the, old, the older they get, they just as a human being seem to age like a fine wine. Uh, 
They become even more conspicuously wiser than anybody else, a lot softer, a lot calmer, a lot more compassionate. Oftentimes it's because they didn't waste those moments of wondering. And instead they learned to wait. Uh, author and, and pastor uh, Tim Keller put it like this. I think it was him. Uh, he said, uh, do not mistake God's silence for God's absence. I'll say that again just because it's so good. Do not mistake God's silence for God's absence. And I would maybe add, do not mistake having no idea what God is doing for God doing nothing. Do not mistake having no idea what God is doing for God doing nothing. At the time that John the Baptist is asking Jesus, or via his disciples anyway, like, okay, who are you really? Are we, should I keep waiting or what's going on? Jesus is already kind of neck deep in his career. And Jesus, as this truly human, truly divine being, goes around and he gives life to everything that he touches. And he starts intervening in stories of the people with whom he interacts. People who have, their stories have been one of separation and poor health, like those with leprosy. People who have experienced loss, like the, the widow who's, who just lost her son, whom he raises from the dead. People who have completely run out of hope, and suddenly he's this beacon, the brightest light you can imagine. And as his career progresses... He starts to answer this question. Where is God? And what is he doing? And as it turns out, the answer to that question is, God comes to you. God invades reality by taking on flesh. God comes to us in word and in sacrament. God ministers to us by using his own followers, his own people, to meet the needs of those around him. When we say Jesus is God is Emmanuel, God is with us, we are not using a turn of phrase, it's not a pun, we aren't being cute, we're actually being quite literal. We have just a couple more weeks, and then we celebrate the birth of Jesus. God entering into our story, taking on our flesh to redeem us and to, all, to answer for all time the questions, where is God and what is God doing? So Merry Christmas. I invite you to rise as you are able.